Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney, on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week, we take a closer look at the financial issues making the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Last week, Afterpay was acquired by US payments fintech Square in a deal valued at 39 billion Australian dollars, the largest acquisition in Australian corporate history. It caps off a monumental run for Afterpay as the pioneer of the buy now, pay later market. So is this modern day form of lay-by the future of payments? Or is it just credit by another name? And will Square be paying for Afterpay in four fortnightly installments? To discuss this, I was joined earlier by James Sleep, Policy Advisor at Financial Counselling Australia. Dr. Marta Common, Postdoctoral Researcher in Economics at UTS. And Dr. Lien Duong, Senior Lecturer in Economics and Finance at Curtin University. At the start of the pandemic, Afterpay's share price was underwater. Last week, it's become the largest corporate acquisition in Australia's history. What about the pandemic specifically has led to Afterpay's rise? Afterpay is very popular with young people and the pandemic would make it more become extremely popular because of a, a couple of factors. Firstly, cashless payment. So, and also people stuck at home with some, some sort of the government job keeper. So they do crazy with online um, shopping. So that is the things that make it really, really become popular uh, during the pandemic. With the afterpay, the year ended 2021, they got global number of customers increased by 63% to 16 million now. It's a huge, huge uh, growth. Does that show a how big that these services, buy now, pay later services, have become not only in Australia but internationally? So the afterpay got, uh, got their foot in um, a lot of markets like Australia, New Zealand, US, Canada, UK, Spain, Italy, and France. Report by ASIC um, in November 2020 say that the buy now, pay later transaction in Australia over the year to June 2019 jumped 75%. And also in the first six months of 2021, afterpay gross profit is about... 284 US million dollars compared with six months before pandemic. That means the six month ending December 2019. It cost profits is only 113 million US dollars. So it's more than double uh, after the pandemic. Wow. In terms of it, it does sound like a perfect storm with you know government stimulus and e-commerce uh, suddenly rising. But let's take this back a step. In terms of Afterpay itself, how does it actually make money as a company? I think in terms of this business model, so basically uh, their income comes from two sources. The first one is the merchant fee. So after pay for every transaction, they charge the merchant about a four to six percent plus 30 cents for a transaction. And the second source is come from the late payment fee. So when the customer, the customer got the option to pay uh, for four installment over every uh, every fortnight. So if they got a late installment, they have to pay 
$10 in uh, at first, and then the subsequent one could be $7. In the financial year ending 2020, the percentage of their levy income is 14%, equivalent to nearly $69 million. Marta, I might ask you, how does Afterpay really tap into human bias in its business model? So first of all, uh, there's this tendency for all of us to uh, crave immediate gratification. So it's this concept of present bias preferences or hyperbolic discounting. So if you ask me today whether I want chocolate bar or an apple right away, I'm going to be very much tempted to immediately go for the chocolate bar and then delay the healthier choice for my future self. So similar thing happens when you're making purchases and there's this immediate pain of paying, which is reduced in the moment. And at the same time, immediate gratification of getting the goods in full. And what researchers have found in terms of what happens in people's minds when we are using a buy now, pay later. So what is happening is that we are matching the reward, the full 100% reward to the cost, which is reduced. Well, it's a fourth. So in the moment, I'm feeling the pain of one fourth and I'm kind of this other 75%, my monkey brain, which is engaged in this behavior, my monkey brain is saying, ah, you know, that's, I don't care about it just now. When we are not being fully rational, we are matching the full reward in the moment to the only a fraction of the cost in the moment. And that can, of course, result in the end of the day of spending more than you can afford, or perhaps more than just optimal in your particular case. James, in terms of who are the people who've been using this, we've talked earlier about uh, we've seen this growth over this time period. We've seen um, more and more people are using Afterpay services. In your work with Financial Counselling Australia, who are the types of people you're seeing who are not only using Afterpay, but also what are they using them for? I think if you look at the marketing of these companies, you would assume that it's primarily a younger audience and certainly um, younger people make up a big cohort of the, cons- of the customers. But financial counselors are reporting quite a broad range of people coming through the doors with buy now, pay later debt. So it could be a family that has um, signed up for a solar panel for their home um, through to young people who might be out paying for things in retail or older people paying for things in retail. But one of the, I think, the more concerning things, and I think this speaks to kind of the context that we're in, people, there are a lot of people struggling. Um, and we're hearing more stories of people who are using buy now, pay later for groceries and other day-to-day expenses. For some people, they're kind of like the new payday lenders because some people may have traditionally gone to a payday lender and now they've got access to buy now, pay later. What is the regulatory gap that companies like Afterpay have really found their way through? So, I mean, and that's one of the reasons why it's become so popular because of this loophole. What is the loophole? Because Buy Now Pay Later um, doesn't charge interest, they aren't regulated under the National Credit Code as credit cards and payday loans. 
Um, so they don't have to comply with things like risk the requirement to lend responsibly and make sure that, for example, if a bank is giving you a mortgage, they need to make sure that you can actually pay back, to, you know, pay for the repayment. And there isn't a requirement to have robust hardship practices in place that comes along with the national credit code. What does that mean on the ground? It means that these products are really easy to access. And so we're hearing reports of people coming, coming into financial counselors with six or more accounts. Um, which is really hard to keep on top of. People becoming overcommitted without often finding themselves without the capacity to repay. Uh, and the ASIC report that was quoted just before, um, there was another stat in there that one in five consumers who are using these products in this really unregulated environment were finding themselves experiencing financial stress. Um, that's quite concerning. Um, and and it's, it's extra concerning because there aren't the procedures in place and the rules in place to make sure that there can be some form of redress for those consumers if they find themselves um, experiencing financial stress. The majority of people using Afterpay, I believe, are under 34, right? So they're people who came of age during the global financial crisis, potentially. People who saw what happened to people who were overextended in terms of credit and are looking at Afterpay as like, well you know, it's better than getting a credit card out and and using Afterpay as a means of getting that same line of credit, but without the strings attached. I, I agree, completely agree with James on that point, that it's so easy for people to get the, the Afterpay um, uh, money. As long as you install the apps, you can have a few thousand dollars or, uh, or maybe $10,000 in just a mere few minutes. All you need to do that you are over 18 years old and you've got a bank account and that's all you need because they're not regulated under the same national credit code line um, for responsible lending things. So it's easy, really easy for them, uh, for the car consumer to get that. And if you look at the ASIC report, they say that majority of customers are young people that make impulse purchase. In a way, you could argue both ways in this case in saying that, in fact, afterpay could lead to more responsible uh, lending or borrowing behavior, as in they have caps and they do cut you off if you don't pay down. They do have caps in how far you can go, uh, unlike many credit cards. In, in terms of free market argument, to say, should we really be babysitting people because there are so many things out there that are dangerous in the world? You know, if you don't have Afterpay, you have 10 other competitors. If you don't have 10 other competitors of buy now, pay later at all, you have banks. Uh, if you don't have banks, you have other credit shocks. Okay, let's leave the kind of babysitting argument to the side and say, well, what are the long-term consequences? And I think the potential harm that these services might be introducing is this idea of habit formation. So if you're a young person who gets into a habit of overspending consistently because I can borrow, well, I'm getting myself in debt precisely at the point in time when I could be starting to save, you introduce this extra frictionless way of getting yourself into debt, or even not getting into debt, but just spending more than sustainable you're immediately exacerbating this problem of not saving enough. Habit-forming type of overspending that Afterpay introduces could be something, to me, more convincing as the potential harm uh, long-term. 
especially introduced to a younger generation who's the clientele. That- I, I read uh, over the weekend that the impetus for Afterpay came from uh, looking at the large number of customers who would arrive at the checkout with full you know, online shopping carts, but who wouldn't complete the transaction. Using this data, a, a fintech is now looking at you, looking at what your mouse is doing, looking at what you're sending to them, and then is saying, how do I take you over the line? And then embedding habits to get people spending more. If I have a bar of chocolates in front of me, uh, I'm going to keep eating them. If I have a bowl of apples, I'm going to be eating apples instead of chocolate. We, we just uh, don't give enough credit to automatic behaviors. And uh, Afterpay is just one of those. In the end of the day, just anything that is frictionless and easy to do is going to become an automatic behavior if you don't consciously cut it off in some way. Choice did an investigation into Afterpay, and I've read that the issue, though, is not necessarily just the accruing of the multiple buy now, pay later debts. The issue is then paying them off and and some people anecdotally turning to payday loans in order to pay off buy now, pay later debts. Is that the sort of stuff that you're seeing at the Financial Counseling Australia, James? Absolutely. That is absolutely happening. And these companies are using very sophisticated behavioral science to be three steps ahead of a consumer. You know, these are not equal playing fields. These are companies that are very carefully thought out. How are they going to um, nudge people very, very carefully towards paying that extra money? Um, But in terms of the wider risks, what happens is once those people make those decisions and perhaps they've become overcommitted in their spending, they are finding themselves getting into a debt spiral. I'll give you one example of a single parent with three children who got into such a position that she had to use buy now, pay later gift cards to buy groceries at Coles and Woolies. Um, And so every two weeks, she was using these these, um, gift cards to pay for food. And then after the cycle had ended of the two weeks, she was having to then pay it back, always constantly in the cycle of borrowing money off a buy now, pay later company and having to pay it back. And so in those cases, you are seeing people go out and find perhaps more risky um, kind of lending practices from, say, payday lenders and others. So they're finding themselves getting into into these kind of debt spirals. What's really critical in all of this is that all of these credit products should be treated the same. Buy now, pay later is a form of credit, is a line of credit, but it is treated so differently to everything else. Afterpay really taps itself as we don't offer interest. It's just four repayments scheduled uh, fortnightly. In terms of this late fees aspects, though, how does how does that necessarily differ to you know, credit cards charging interest on uh, purchases? I think that they they claim that it's different so that they don't have to be regulated under the National Credit Court. Um, But technically, if you look at in terms of finance, it is almost the same. So the average after pay transaction that listed on their website is about $150. So if you've got that, the first late payment is $10. So you've got uh, equivalent to 6.6% per fortnight. So the late payment fee, it could technically, it could equivalent to the interest charge by the credit card or other loan companies. The uh, federal government's declined to uh, regulate the industry. I believe it was a, a Senate Select Committee report from last year that said, well, self-regulation ought to take care of this issue. Now, 
the Australian Financial Institute Association has come up with a voluntary code that Afterpay and I think the other big seven uh, players in the buy now pay letter space in Australia that make up I think 95% of the industry have all signed up to. What's the difference between that voluntary code and the national credit code that credit providers are regulated by? As you say that all eight uh, by now pay level provider that they came to sign up for the voluntary code of conduct. So basically that code of conduct, they say that uh, you should perform a check on the customer for borrowing less than $2,000. So you must use at least one source of data. So the source of data in here can be a customer check or via a rating agency. So they got a tier like less than 2000, you have to use at least one source of data between 2000 uh, and 2001 and 15,000, you must use at least one or the other. In, in my opinion, that buy now pay later is an innovative product to the Australian market. So, but the most important thing is about the level of financial literacy. So if I'm a good spender, um, got a good spending pattern, I can basically borrow something and pay instrument later on to help me freeze up the interest on the credit card. So I, I'm, I'm good at repay. I got a good repayment habit. So that is actually good for me. But lots and lots of consumers, actually, they rely on buy now, pay later. They think that, oh, it's so easy to get that. And they don't really work on how much income they have. So that's why the debt mountain coming in. In some way, it is a step in the right direction that there is um, some level of voluntary uh, self-regulation, but it, it doesn't go far enough. And I think, you know, the Banking Royal Commission was really critical about industry self-regulation and that both with the codes being complied with, whether or not they're actually going further enough and what were the consequences for breaching those codes. With this code in particular, the, the strongest consequence is that they that company will be named and shamed. Um, so it doesn't actually address how do we um, deal with the harm and the outcomes that could have been as a result of poor regulation, but simply, you know, arguably a PR stunt to name and shame a company. That just is not good enough. It's really important that the government um, steps into the space um, as they are in the United Kingdom um, and makes sure that our legislation is keeping up with the pace of innovation in the space. And right now it's not. And people are, are paying the price of that through the one in five people that ASIC reports who are experiencing harm as a result of buy now, pay later. The regulatory or self-regulation type of charade is a very common way, of course, for these companies to lobby for what they would prefer. Uh, and so anything that's kind of self-regulated by definition is going to be serving them. A broader point about what is then the better way to regulate them. Uh, without harming this competitive market, which is, well, judging from the value of this acquisition, bringing, you know, substantial, uh, well, if nothing else, PR to how fintechy Australia is. Uh, and in fact, uh, fintech is one of the kind of priority industries in the government's agenda. So you don't want to harm the market. You don't want to stifle innovation. So then, what is the solution? Is it financial literacy or regulation or the combination of the two or banning the, the industry altogether? If you had to guess which one was more effective in encouraging a more responsible behavior, the financial literacy intervention where you teach people, I don't know, how to calculate effective annual interest rate, where to read about it, how saving is better for you than borrowing all that gear versus 
big letters required 112% effective interest rate per year if you're late. The big banner effective annual interest rate required by regulators to be disclosed, that was the thing that just set all the uh, payday uh, loan companies at some you know, baseline surviving level where people, well, weren't borrowing irresponsibly anymore. Uh, from regulatory standpoint, I think, uh, and, and what kind of pre-markets argument would be advocating is let's not stifle innovation, but let's ensure that those negative externalities, such as people being underinformed, do not happen. So force them to disclose uh, in a more transparent way, not in the small asterisk. I want to move now to the Square acquisition, the reason that we're all together at this virtual roundtable. Why did Square want to acquire Afterpay and, and consolidate its claim in the buy now, pay later space? So the reason I think Square wants to, to pay so much for Afterpay, given that when it first, uh, the, the Afterpay, when it first um, listed on stock exchange, it's only $1. But the implied market uh, share for Afterpay after the Square acquisition is about $126. It's because of real creative. So all credit card uh, banks and the big tech want to get a tap into the buy now pay later market. We got announcement from Visa in July 2019 and they start rolling out uh, their technology to US and Canada market um, last year and this year. We got Commonwealth Bank Australia uh, announcing its plan for the step by. Uh, it's not available yet, but it's going to be happen. So everything basically mirror what after pay do pay in for a uh, fortnightly and for installment. So we got PayPal launch it pay in for in uh, Australia last month. And the difference between PayPal and after pay that PayPal will not charge uh, the late fee payment. And also Apple now is announcement last month that they're going to step into the buy now pay later market. So I think Square just do a simpler step by just buying the Pioneer in the buy now pay later market. We've seen with that expansion, do you think the Square acquisition is the apex of this kind of a deal? Uh, or is this a sign that the buy now pay later space is here, it's here to stay, and it's only going to get bigger and take on a bigger part of the payments market. Yeah, I think it will take on the bigger part of the payment market because currently Afterpay got only 16 million customers. Uh, and Square, they are dominant in the US market and they got about 70 million customers. So that is actually is a big step for Afterpay going to the US market through this acquisition. And the fact that the co-founder of Afterpay um, will be retained in the um, square board after the acquisition. That, that would be that they keep working to expanding into that US market. I thought the number, Lian, you mentioned at the very start was very revealing. That number was uh, about 14%, which is the percent of revenue, I think, that Afterpay is making from late fees. Now the rest is what they're making from merchants, right? Now, why the Afterpay Square is a match made in heaven is because what Afterpay gets is the huge uh, bucket of merchants. And uh, the number uh, that I think you might have mentioned 
well, uh, Square has got millions of merchants already on board in the US, while Afterpay only got 25,400 merchants in the US, right? The business model, if I had to oversimplify of Square, is that they are charging merchants to have this um, off-the-shelf solution, right, to accept credit cards. So Afterpay, on the other side of the spectrum, is also working with merchants, but their competitive part in this deal is that they've got a lot of consumers, right, who want Afterpay. So suddenly you're marrying these two uh, pieces of the puzzle. One guy brings on board the consumer push, the other guy brings on board the merchants, right? And so uh, this 30% premium must be the value, or according at least to what Square is prepared to pay, this value of these synergies from cross-selling. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly whether that's overpriced or not, but the important bit here is this is a, a winner-take-all market. So network externalities are going to determine who's going to come out on top from this incredible competition uh, of uh, both Square-like uh, type of providers and even more Afterpay-like providers. Mm -hmm. So the more you can, the faster you can grow early on, the more competitive advantage you're going to have down the road, simply because you're suddenly having a multiple of what you were originally uh, set up to have. What does this mean for traditional institutions like banks? Is it going to be enough that the Commonwealth Bank has just said, you know, we'll partner with Klarna, we'll, we'll dip in, we're still cool and hip, I promise, They're don't just worry. Slow. They're dinosaurs. That's why they've been <laughs> disrupted in the first place. <laughs> I mean, the banking sector has been ripe for disruption. Everyone's disrupting them, just kind of banks being these huge machines with you know, different floors everywhere and different sellers and things they, even their CEO might not know what, kind of what else is there in the business model. And suddenly you have providers targeting those specific niches, biting out pieces, bits and pieces uh, from the banks. And besides the way, the reason banks became, became such dinosaurs is regulation because they are overregulated. So it's, it's the regulation that created the, after a monster. <laughs> now let's see what happens when they start to regulate it back. I mean, you know, is this going to be a brave new world? How does it get bigger in terms of how it affects our daily lives and spending habits? For me, it seems like it's still super small as a fraction of overall, uh, you know, consumer purchases, I think is the correct market here. It's not necessarily lending market. It's not about loans. The lending market is loans for houses and cars and substantial things and business loans. I'm curious to see sort of the wider shakeup of payments and where is Apple going to fit into this up against Square and like, um, and speaking to regulation, I mean, obviously this is all happening, you know, in an environment that is highly unregulated. So that is, of course, going to provide those companies with the competitive advantage over, over others to kind of um, eat up the, the consumer credit market. And that's exactly what's happening. There are people who will continue to feel the harms of that and be on the downside of that. And it's really critical that we also have governments keeping that up the pace to make sure that the protections are in place for everyone to be in the market in a, in a fair way. That's all for today's panel. Thank you to my guests, James Sleep, Marta Common, and Leanne Duong. 
You can catch the full show online, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Toby Hemmings. Stay safe.